Good morning. This is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to my latest podcast. Uh, I entitled this one Carnery CTA Protocol 64 to 320 MDCT and Beyond. And this is a talk I gave in part this past weekend. This is January 2009 at Barry Katzen's course, the uh, CTA course at ISET in Fort Lauderdale. And I will say it was nice going to Fort Lauderdale, 70 degrees versus Baltimore, 9 degrees. Um, this lecture also, I, I renamed it, which is this name, which is uh, how to successfully do a cardiac CT scan. With PS, it ain't as easy as they say it is. And one of the things I've noticed, I've been to a million talks, and probably you have also, and people make cardiac CT seem very simple. I will admit, from 16 to 64 and beyond, it's gotten a whole lot easier. But it's not that simple. You need to do everything correct, or the study is not going to work. Now, the new scanners, the next generation, things like flash, are going to work better in the sense scan times are a quarter of a heartbeat. It's going to be much easier. But again, patient prep, timing, contrast delivery, there'll be different issues, but they'll still be there. It'll be easier, I think. But let's take a look. And so my number one challenge, really, if I think about cardiac CT, forgetting everything, the challenge is getting a high-quality study that allows accurate detection and quantification of disease on each and every patient, which means the acquisition of the data, the analysis of the data, and the interpretation. And I'm going to focus in this two-part series on more of the acquisition. So what are the specific issues and challenges? Well, if you think about it, there are four challenges. One is the patient. The patient has to be cooperative. I'll speak about that more in a moment. But the patient, whether it's the heart rate, whether it's the breathing, whether it's cooperation, that's critical. The scanner and the scan protocol. You need a 64 slicer. Better, uh, the better is your scanner, the better is your study. So dual source is easier. Um, I have no experience with the 256 or 320, but that may have certain advantages as well as it's being shown in the literature. And surely things like the flash seem like they'll be very exciting. But you need to have a really good scanner. The technologists have to be well trained. They need to know how to do cardiac CT. That is not a uh, simple skill. They need to be trained and retrained. And then, of course, the interpreting physician. You need to know how to read cardiac CT. You need to know how to use the workstation. But I'll speak about that separately. I've spoken about that before. But let's talk more about the, uh, the process to begin with. So patient preparation, data acquisition, data post-processing, and data interpretation are the four steps, another way of looking at it. But let's focus on the patient preparation. So what do we need to do? Well, we always need to deal with the patient directly. So whether it's the radiologist or it's the radiology nurse or it's a technologist, someone needs to speak to the patient and tell them what's going on. Everything needs to be told to them. They need to understand so they can cooperate. Patients obviously want to cooperate. In fact, sometimes studies get screwed up because the patients are too cooperative, but they need to know how to do things. We also need to have heart rate control. Even on the dual source, you want a steady heart rate, so beta blockers are critical. Many sites use nitroglycerin. What IV contrast you choose is critical, and we'll speak about these things. And again, if the patient is not cooperative, you can end up with a study like this. Look at the motion. It's totally un uninterpretable. Well, maybe not exactly. I can't read it, but look at this ad in the paper. It looks like a Crestar ad. So I read this case as uh, lots of motion, but probably elevated cholesterol. Okay, well, not a good interpretation. 
Now, what about this preparation of the patient? You gotta speak to the patient in advance, reinforce the need for their cooperation, tell them how the study is gonna happen, how they're gonna hold their breath, the feeling warm. The key really is no surprises. You gotta have very consistent breathing instructions. You gotta do them the same way every time. The patient has to be focused on the job at hand. And you and the technologist also have to be focused. Remember, we speak about reasons why you can't do cardiac CT successfully. And number one, it's an uncooperative patient. If the patient's uncooperative, you can get by with a liver or an abdominal aorta or rule out abscess, you can get by. Cardiac CT, you can't get by. If the patient's uncooperative, just forget about it. Now, another thing, even with the most cooperative patient, is heart rate. We know the slower the heart rate, the longer diastole, and so the better the data acquired. We also know arrhythmias are of limitation. Many people at first would say you can't do patients with arrhythmias, but I think the answer is you can, as long as they're not too bad, but it will take you more time in the post-processing steps. So what about heart rate? Let's look at this a little bit more carefully. Well, when we talk about CTA failing, we talk about irregular heart rates, we talk about dense calcification, but too fast a heart rate. Now, what is too fast a heart rate? Well, it's going to depend on your scanner and your experience. Most people like to get heart rates down to 60. Some people like to get it down to 50. Uh, I like to get it down to under 65, but 60 is really good. And so what you need to do is if a patient's heart rate is not regular and it's not in the 60 range, you need to give medication. You need to give beta blockers. So typically you give 50 to 100 milligrams of metoprolol. Well, our protocol is simple. Patient comes an hour prior to CT, you check the heart rate, you check the pulse, you look for a regular rate, you look for how the patient's heart rate behaves when the patient holds their breath. You recognize that the heart rate will probably go up a little bit when they get contrast or get in the scanner because of increased anxiety. But if it's elevated, you give them beta blockers. Over 75 heart rate, 100 milligrams. Under 75, patients smaller, typically 50 milligrams works well. Usually within about 30 minutes, the metoprolol will work, though 60 is its peak time. And then if it's unsuccessful at 60 minutes, you have two choices. You can give IV or give more oral. Typically IV is done because you really don't want to wait much longer. With IV, depending on your site, 2.5 to 5 milligrams push metoprolol up to a total of 20, okay? So that's what you can do. Now, beta blockers are safe. We wrote some articles about this. Um, very, very straightforward, very low complication rate. In fact, in our series, we had no complications. Now, if you look at the effect of metoprolol, again, a nice agent, decreasing heart rate by about 10 beats per minute the first half hour, and uh, at an hour, about 16 beats. So you can see if you're, you're coming in there in the mid-70s, by an hour, you're in great shape, and even by a half hour, you're in good shape. So again, we do have some numbers, and that's not surprising with those numbers because when you look at the product insert, uh, the heart rate uh, drops peak about one hour after you give the dose. So that makes some sense. Now in beta blockers, is there any contraindications? Well, of course, low heart rate or low blood pressure, which is why you want to examine the patient first. Patients who are asthmatic is not really the issue as much as patients who are asthmatic who are being treated with agents for bronchospasm. Those are patients you do not want to give uh, metoprolol to. Now, in terms of follow-up for oral contrast, when they get oral metoprolol, 
not an issue. Patients finish the study, they leave. If you give IV, uh, you want to be a little bit more careful, particularly if you're giving you know, 10 to 20 milligrams. Um, at that point, you probably would want to have the patient sit around for about a half an hour. Remember, if the heart rate drops too low, use atropine up to 0.04 milligrams per kilogram or about 4 milligrams for a 100 kilogram patient, just to put in perspective. Now, we talk about heart rate, you know, the issue with dual source CT being 83 milliseconds. We use a dual source for routinely. We can do heart rates into the 90s. There have been several articles that do make the point that the heart rate alone, the exact beat of the heart is critical, but it's not the only critical factor, regularity. So many people will give beta blockers even when they have a dual source scanner. Now, dual source, just to remind people, two x-ray tubes, two detector arrays, angular effect of 90 degrees, gantry speed is 330 milliseconds, about three rotations per second, and you get a temporal resolution of about 83 milliseconds. Typically, 64 gives you about 165 milliseconds. Couple articles. Here's an article by Matt. Overall image quality of dual source CT for coronary angiography is sufficient. The diagnosis of wide range of heart rates and variability of heart rates. Only when the heart rate is both high and variable do you have a problem with image quality. So uh, it makes the point that if heart rates are high, it's not an issue with dual source unless you have a variable rate. So beta blockers would be helpful in that regard. And while dual source CT resulted in heart rate independent image quality, image quality remained prone to heart rate variability and calcification. So again, we don't control calcification, but we sure can control, in some sense, the heart rate variability. And same article, uh, dual source CT calcification is the primary cause of degraded image quality and continues to pose a, a challenge to us in terms of our accuracy. And again, we know that, and we'll speak about that a little bit later. Now, I mentioned before about nitroglycerin. Well, its use will depend on the clinical site. More than uh, three-quarters of sites do use it. Does it make this studies more uh, diagnostic? That's a good question. Um, in terms of dose, 0.3 to 0.4 milligrams sublingual is most common. Some people do use a spray. The spray works very nicely, but uh, the issue is you'd have to use the spray multiple times, and many institutions do not allow you to use the same spray on multiple patients. That would be the only issue. A couple of things in the literature. In CT angiography, nitroglycerin has been found to increase the proximal coronary diameters by up to 21%, although it's not clear that this affects diagnostic accuracy. Or this article, uh, that you see more septal branches. Okay, so um, again, it never hurts. Now, the only time it can hurt, of course, is if patients get side effects, and the most common side effect is headache. If you tell the patient they're going to get a headache, they're going to get a headache. If they get a headache, I'm going to get a headache. So again, something to be aware of, but we do inform patients. Now, there is one important uh, contraindication to uh, nitroglycerin. Patients on erectile dysfunction medications like Viagra, Cialis, Levitra should not be given nitrates. And severe side effects include low blood pressure and death. And uh, again, so you do not want to give that medication within 24 hours pre or post uh, CT. So again, uh, if you're going to use nitroglycerin, make sure you get that history. Uh, you might want to have the scheduling person tell them over the phone that if they use that medication, male or females, not to take it because they may be getting nitroglycerin. Now the last medication I'll mention is the contrast. We use iodixanol or Visipeg for several reasons. One, it's safety profile 
and two is the fact that it has left impact on cardiac function. So in terms of uh, minor effects, warmth, pain, uh, this was an article by Becker a couple years back showing that with an isoosmolar agent, it's significantly less and it's in fact very uncommon. They have a number of articles showing the increased safety. Here was one article by McCullough talking about a meta-analysis showing that uh, with um, Visipac, is associated with lower or smaller rises in creatinine and lower rates of sin. And the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology have recognized this and have a number of recommendations that for patients with renal disease that isoosmolar agents like Visipake is really the way to go. Now, um, a couple other comments. I mentioned before about heart rate. Lower heart rate variability is associated with higher diagnostic accuracy, or that image quality and accuracy were better with patients with lower heart rate variability than high heart rate variability. And Visipake, it's been shown, and this is angiographic data, changes the heart rate less. So besides being safer to the kidneys, it causes less variability in heart rate, which indeed becomes very, very important to us, as these articles nicely show. Now, in terms of IV contrast, how do you give IV contrast? Well, there are a number of different ways to give it. And how you give it will vary a little bit based on your scanner, a little bit on the individual patient, surely in terms of timing that's the case, but you need to come up with protocols and you need to make certain that it works really within your scanner. So I'll give you some generic protocols in terms of scan, MAS and the like, but you really need to make sure you're certain what the scanner protocol should be. You could look at CTSS for many protocols, if not, speak to your app specialist. But you really need to know things like scan trigger delay. When you press the button on the scanner, how long a delay is it till it starts scanning? So that's very, very important. Now, in terms of contrast, we talk about injection rates. Literature, 3 to 8 cc's per second. We do 5. Right in the cubital fossa, 18 to 20 gauge catheter. Angiocath is really ideal. In terms of 64 slice scanners, we're typically going with 80 to 100 ml bolus. Uh, dual source, our boluses tend to be uh, shorter. We inject faster, but we're going in the 60 to 70 ml range. And again, I explained to you why we use Visipake as a contrast agent. Now, the question then is how do you deliver the contrast? Do you use a preset delay? Do you go at 25 seconds or 23 seconds routinely? Do you track it, bolus tracking? Do you t do test bolus? Well, there's three choices. The one you should not be doing is a preset delay. I know that if you do a 23-second preset delay, you'll get the studies right in most cases. If pulmonary embolism, you go 19 seconds, you're going to get it right in most cases. But most cases is not good enough. You need to be able to use either bolus tracking or test bolus. And what we'll do is why don't we stop here, and that's where we'll pick it up next time. Thank you very much.